0: Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest this week is Steve Clemens, founding editor-at-large of Semaphore, a new global news organization launching in October of this year. Steve is also the immediate past editor-at-large of The Hill, where he is now a contributing editor and host of Al Jazeera English's Washington-based news show, The Bottom Line. Before joining The Hill, Clemens held senior editorial roles at The Atlantic, National Journal, and Quartz. He is proprietor of the popular political blog, The Washington Note, and had leadership roles at several Washington think tanks, including the New America Foundation, the Economic Strategy Institute, and the Nixon Center, now renamed the Center for the National Interest. Steve was also Senior Economic and International Affairs Advisor to Senator Jeff Bingaman. My conversation with Steve Clemens, one of the most insightful, engaging, and connected Washington columnists and journalists, about U.S. politics and policy in the Middle East begins now. Steve, welcome to On the Middle East.
1: My pleasure, Andrew. Great to be with you.
0: Great to have you with us. Let's start with an industry question. I can't resist. What can you tell us about SEMA4? There's a lot of buzz out there about this new global media company. What can we expect and how does it fit into the Current media landscape.
1: Well, I can give you two parts of the answer. You know, first, semaphore um, means signal for those who don't know the term. But I think many people in the military, who've served in the military, know it's an old naval signaling term. It's also a term used in uh, the artificial intelligence arena um, as as a term to distinguish true signal from false signal. Uh, and and so, you know, I think when you are uh, out there, you know, looking at this question of um falsity and fabrication and posturing and social media driven news um we want to be the antithesis of that and to create essentially the best in standard journalism of major scale so we, we plan to be global and plan to be deployed in europe asia africa um, europe etc and i think that we will um have you know some of the best people in the business that are developing the product now we have six months or so before we will be launching um, our new product. First product will probably be October 1st, the other suite of products around November. And I think in that process, you'll see um, a lot of things we do as high quality reported journal- journalism. You know, Axios um, solved the problem of how to digest a lot of news and deliver it to people in a manageable format. Their shtick is called smart brevity. We're not smart brevity. We're going to have highly reported news, but we're, I think we're going to work on how we. Um, you know, tell a story and anchor it in a greater uh, commitment to reality and transparency than most have. So I know that that's a lot of gobbledygook to folks, but uh, trust me, we're working hard on it and have people, but it would be a disservice to my colleagues to say more than that until we're out there right now. But I'm very, very excited about it. And As you know, we have Ben Smith as our editor-in-chief in in the New York Times. You know, he was the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. Justin Smith, who was the CEO of Bloomberg Global Media, and he was my CEO at The Atlantic. And we have Gina Chua, who is executive editor of Thomson Reuters. She's joined us uh, as our executive editor, Caitlin Roman, of the uh, chief product officer of The Athletic. Uh, Rachel Oppenheim, who is one of the chief revenue people at The New York Times, has just joined as our chief revenue. So it, the, the octane level of the people I'm working with is, is the best in this startup that I've, that I've ever had in my career.
0: And that's saying something. So, Steve, very much looking forward to uh, Semaphore uh, launching in October. We'll be in touch about that. And thank you for the for the uh, the update. And how's it going? Sure. It's a great team, great enterprise. Let's get into the substance here of um, what's happening in the news. The Russia-Ukraine war is recasting. U.S. National Security Defense Secretary Austin said this week that one objective is to weaken Russia so it can never do something like this again, that is invade Ukraine. There seems to be bipartisan backing for a hard line on Russia and Putin, and then strong support of Zelensky in Ukraine. But let's get into the US politics of this, because you you have such a good good feel on, on how the country is reacting and people in Washington are reacting. President Biden's approval ratings continue to go down, despite Widespread support for his policies in Ukraine. How do you see the politics of the Ukraine war, especially with congressional elections coming up in November? Or does it not matter what we're doing in Russia with regard to the other issues in American politics?
1: You know, I think President Biden has a complex terrain to navigate. And he, since the withdrawal from Afghanistan and what appeared to many Americans to be extreme um, high consequence bungling of the American withdrawal there. Um, whether people agreed we needed to be in Afghanistan or not, they they largely do agree across party lines that it was a mess. And and his popularity ratings, what, what I call Trump levels. <laughs> so he's at Trump levels of popularity now and it's been down there for a long time. And typically, in a crisis like the Ukraine war, particularly with a country that was such an adversary during the Cold War with the United States and Soviet Union, you would imagine there would be a bump up. I heard, you know, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates just the other night, you know, praising uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, and the administration for um, both the efforts they've made uh, in, in you know, sending the right signals to Russia of being, you know, strong of supporting uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians, but also showing restraint. Um, and doing that. And that's a rare thing, because Bob Gates, as you know, is very, very critical of Joe Biden and said he had never made a foreign policy decision that he agreed with in the past. But So that was a very interesting moment. But he also said that what is missing right now is that President Biden is not taking this moment where you see people dying in the streets, dying and fighting for their liberty, fighting for democracy, fighting for their lives against an invader of a sovereign nation and he's not taking this moment to explain to Americans why Ukraine matters so much to America, why being engaged in global affairs matters so much to America. And this gets to a deeper issue in the numbers you're looking at, that there remains a fatigue in America and a sense that being engaged globally has not worked out to the benefit of many, many Americans, that, that whether it was trade deals, whether it was you know, serving you know, in multiple Uh, uh, lines of terms of duty in Afghanistan or Iraq, that somehow the quid pro quo that the average American family felt by America playing that role of global security guarantor in the world was no longer benefiting them, that they had fought the Cold War a generation ago and China had won. And so this notion of this disconnect between American engagement in the world and what Americans get in return from the world is right now broken in my book, and it's why I think you see flat numbers, even in this moment of high crisis and high tension and riveting heroic stories in Ukraine. The fact is Washington and the strategic class may be applauding uh, the, the unity in NATO and the newfound purpose for America's place in the world, et cetera. But a lot of Americans aren't there. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Joe Biden is not in the 60s uh, and he's down in the low
0: 40s. It's a very interesting analysis. I'd like to take it one step further and, and kind of bring in the Middle East. You know, during the uh, campaign, uh, the 2020 campaign, I wrote a piece looking back at uh, Biden's position on Iraq. And as you know, I was with Chuck Hagel at, at the time during the Iraq war and uh, Senators Biden, Luger, and Hagel tried to offer at the time an alternative resolution to the one that the leadership in the Congress was putting forward uh, that had more uh, conditionality with regard to diplomacy in the second UN resolution and a number of other things. It could not get out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee because three Democrats were just a hard no. Wellstone, Boxer, and Feingold. And uh, on the Republican side, um, Link Chafee, even for a compromise, uh, resolution supported by Biden, Hegel, and Luger to counter, you know, what Warner and McCain and the others were putting forward. Are you surprised at all at the absence of kind of what we might call anti-war voices in the Democrat Party at this time, and that the unanimity of the strategic class and the political class, at least in terms of the Congress, uh, is so strong behind the president?
1: I am, uh, Andrew. I sort of think we're in this Period of time where there's an inchoateness in strategic thought. You used to have defined schools, and and you know for a quick tour through this, you know we had neoconservatives uh, on the right, and we had liberal internationalists on the left, but all well-meaning people who you know I, I look at as patriots who care about the country. But to be to be you know blunt, um, they tend to. Both for various reasons and drivers believe in the deployment of American power to either secure democracy, secure human rights, the you know, a values-based driven militancy uh, in the world. And both the right and the left uh, congealed around a lot of these uh, issues. But there was a school, you know, US foreign policy, as you know, Andrew, and you know, Senator Hegel was part of this school had a long um, line of realist thinkers who said, you know, at the end of the day, we want to do good things in the world as a a great nation, as a steward of security, as a superpower, but we want to be able to steward our resources that we can fight another day, that we're there. And it is really your future position that gives you the premium of power that other nations respect or fear or work with. And so that realism was always a balance to this. I can't tell who the realists are anymore. I can't even see if they're there. I know Bill Burns, who's directed the CIA, is a hardcore realist, but I'm not sure where everyone else is in this. And it seems like we've gotten swept into, um, I, I think, a, 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 a careless kind of willingness to, to you know, be for semi-war. now. I, I don't think anybody is advocating that that we go to war with Russia, but we're going to close war to Russia. And if you basically look at the world of gray conflict and hybrid conflict today and how we do maybe we're at war with Russia right now. Maybe we've been more at war with China right now. we It's very hard, one of the big uh, nightmares I have about national security questions is whether we are caught like the British were doing during the American Revolutionary War. The British were well organized, regimented. You know, well outformed and uniformed, uh, lots of codes and how they operated, uh, and the Americans were in the woods and marshes and swamps, you know, fighting them, the militias. And and today it seems like other nations, like Russia, uh, as we've seen with little green men in Ukraine, uh, in Crimea, as you see with um, China and cyber uh, activities, etc. The dimensions of conflict have changed so dramatically that I don't know if. War and conflict as we kind of typically classify them are the things we should be looking at. There are many other dimensions uh, to that today. And so I think it makes it easy for a Senator or for Democrat, for Republicans or everything to sort of be for, you know, a, a, a vigilant reaction. But we used to talk Andrew about deterrence, you know, what what it took to shore up deterrence, what readiness was, be- this whole kind of conversation seems to be pushed push to the sidelines while people posture one way or another without having to look you know, at the ecosystem of commitment when it comes to uh, a conflict and either being engaged in it or not. I know that's long-winded, but I do think that right now it's very surprising that that calculating realism about American national security interests and making sure we stay on the right side of that line and not get overextended is, is in thin supply right now in the US Congress.
0: Great point, Stephen. Really well said. I mean, in understanding the fluidity between diplomacy, which is about engagement and not about giving things away, and deterrence and how that comes together, especially in this new hybrid world of threats uh, that you laid out so well uh, Well said. Steve, you and I were in Doha together uh, last month and you were in touch with the leaders in Washington and abroad and they talked to you. And tell us, based upon your conversations in Qatar, in the Middle East more broadly, uh, with Middle Eastern leaders uh, here in Washington and those passing through, you, you come across what, if anything, is the mainstream media and strategic class here in Washington missing about the Middle East? How is the region seeing Washington and the United States? And what are they saying about us, including and especially this Russia-Ukraine war uh, and even more broadly our our relationship and um, contest and competitive relationship with China?
1: Look, there's a formalism in foreign affairs, that people on stage and people in meetings and people in classrooms and on news lines and have official roles often don't critique the United States because it's an important ally and partner. And so many of the nations there believe and want America to do well and to be perceived as strong and capable. But there is an informal reality that all of them have to prepare for and simulate for, which is... Uh, during the Trump administration in the era of America first, which popped its head up at that time, but still remains with us in a significant number of Americans, but also in the strategic cautiousness uh, of, of Barack Obama, the strategic contraction, as perceived in, in some of the things that President Biden has done, there is a sense that America rolling back some of its presence, its commitment in the various parts of the world. And even when President Biden came out and sent his defense secretary uh, sent his uh, uh, you know, secretary of state and his national security advisor to wrestle with China in the so-called pivot to Asia. That was read by a lot of parts of the world where pivoting to Asia, we're putting a lot of resources. There more platforms and attention. We're going to send folks there. But um, sorry, the rest of the world, we're busy. And so it made America look weaker and less dependable. And I've often said, if you want to measure the way um, America is perceived in the world, its footprint, Don't look at our enemies like North Korea, or I would say Iran or rivals, I should say. Look at our allies. And I wrote a piece a long time ago. I mean, it preceded this period of time, preceded Donald Trump. I said, look at Japan, look at Germany. So two huge allies of the United States that, that we had beaten in World War II that became anchors of our relationship and stability in their various theaters. Look at uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel, both of whom were Two, And you can look and you just begin to measure how they began to behave differently than they would have otherwise in an era where America was uncontested, maybe except in the Cold War with the Soviets, but it was just so robustly engaged everywhere in the world. They had strong confidence that America would be with them in their dark days. I think that has deteriorated significantly and all these other nations in the world are trying to help us, trying to be there, but they don't believe that we will fully be there. So you see cases like the UAE has actually been an agent of Russia coming into places like Libya and Egypt. UAE is a very close ally of the United States, but it's not depending only on the United States. You have you know, other areas in the Middle East. You have Qatar, which has came to uh, American support and rescue, if you will, in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, playing a huge role as the UAE also did, by the way, in massive airlift of people out, but also taking over key institutions and playing the role of being interlocutor with the Taliban uh, for us. But that creates burdens for others out there. So America has allies and friends, but it's just a different relationship where the relative weight of America is in decline. And you see other nations like China and Russia, if you go over and have a frank conversation in the Middle East, they will tell you Russia is more, much more present now. This is pre-Ukraine invasion, uh, but even in places like um, the UAE, the Russia continues to be a very big presence and a very big, um, um, you know, mover of the needles there. But I think that China and other nations are now, you know, in a, in a in a world that is no longer indisputably under the influence of you know, a single superpower, you see the diversity of power and the different currents of power very actively in the Middle East. And I think there's a lament, frankly, and I felt it when we were in Doha, a lament that America seems to be on crutches, doesn't seem to be able to do all the kinds of things it was going to do, that is somehow doubted. And I think that's a problem. And I think it's because in my view, we got overextended uh, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And we we saw the mystique of America's superpower status in the world punctured. And when you're, you know, I tell you, being a superpower is not all, you know, missiles and tanks and ships. It's also the strength and vitality of your economy. And it's, it's, it's not having a, you know, 2008, 2009 financial crisis with structural corruption in your economy. And so these kinds of things have added up to create big question marks and doubts about the United States. And if I were advising the president, advising uh, uh, our nation's leaders, I would say the first thing we need to do is do far more to correct those problems. And, and that's not necessarily a military function. It's, it's, it's a diplomatic, it's a political one, it's even an economic one, because China's power comes as much, if not more, from things like the Belt and Road Initiative than they do from the size of China's growing military.
0: Steve, there have been a number of articles recently about the problems in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and these ties have been a bedrock of U.S. policy in the Gulf, and uh, it started, the U.S. started to have issues with the kingdom after 9-11, then over the Arab Peace Initiative, the Iraq War, but now it seems the strains are, are quite severe. Uh, what's your take is it better or worse than reported? Are they solvable problems? Uh, how do you see it?
1: look, we're we're going to be, you know, I, I remember when uh, John Kerry was our Secretary of State. um Joe Biden was our vice president. Um, I won't put words in their mouth, but, but mouths, but the, you know, various people was meeting to in the in that administration at the time. We're increasingly looking at Iran, which was a complicated, uh, rival power in which we were trying to do a, a joint, uh, deal around, uh, the future of its nuclear energy program and, and came up with the joint, uh, the JCPOA, this joint comprehensive plan of action. And, and in that, um, process, you know, we had various skirmishes and tensions with Iran that got solved and to a certain degree, a camaraderie, if you will, I wouldn't sure to call it camaraderie, but a comfortableness that, 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 um, Iran kind of became a more comfortable rival, at the same time that Saudi Arabia became a very uncomfortable ally. And I think that those that that uncomfortable ally status of the Saudis, which became uh, very aggravated and hit you know one of its key points with the co- uh, killing of Jamal Khashoggi, um, and the aftermath of that, and 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 whatnot, in the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the crown prince currently is is one that we're faced in a situation this is where realism takes hold where you you can't be in conflict right now with all of the world's great oil and energy producers it's a fundamental core necessity but it also means you've got to get back to managing complex relationships where you can challenge mohammed bin salman for some of the things that he has done that have been horrible and ruthless and deal with them in one, you know, one way, uh, uh, constructively and, and try to punish or, or have it. And we used to do this with the Soviet union. We would have, you know, 13 different tracks with the Soviets If two or three of them blew up. We'd have, you know, eight or nine others, whether it was food trade or, you know, whatever arms control. And, and I think that with some of these powers that have become complicated and are clearly not going to become, you know, to quote Tom Friedman, they're not going to become more like us than, uh, um, although he did write one time that everybody was becoming more like us, it's just simply not the fact that we've got to find a way to to not ascribe and and, and to think that we will be transformative in the culture and decision-making and behavior of all these countries, but we have core national security interests that do matter. So Saudi Arabia is a vital nation that is more our ally and supporter, though complex and problematic, and it plays across the line sometimes. But overall, it's been with us far more than it's been against us. And that's the opposite of Iran. So what you want to do is try to keep, you know, the Saudis on on one side of the line while you're trying to find a different future forward with Iran. And, And part of the problem is that Iran, the Iran- Saudi relationship is kind of like the Pakistan-India relationship. They're at each other's throats and they're each other's strategic rivals in the region. Uh, and the U.S. has diminishing capacity or perceived diminishing capacity in these relationships. Um, and that's a real big security risk. I mean, you, have, you and I have both been in Pentagon simulations before where they look at Pakistan and India as one of the most likely places for thermonuclear exchange. I would say if you wait 20 years and we don't keep you know, nuclear proliferation bottled up, the Saudis and the Iranians will be in the same situation as, as the Indians and the Pakistanis. So I think in, in that, um, I know it's hard for people to hear, we cannot walk away from the Saudis, but that doesn't mean we have to acquiesce and hug them either and and bless Mohammed bin Salman's economic plans. And ha- you know he would like to tie it all together in a neat ribbon and stop being criticized. Absolutely not. But at the same time, we can't walk away from the reality that they are a key Um, energy partner, and also a key uh, uh, ally where more of their uh, security interests overlap with ours than not.
0: Absolutely right, Steve. And let's not forget the the war in Yemen, which cannot come to a close without a very close partnership and coordination. And hopefully we see some some positive signs there. Let's turn to Iran. Now, the, the Iran nuclear deal may have a pulse. It's a faint pulse at this point.
1: Yeah, I thought it was almost it was almost uh back.
0: Yeah. yeah, like uh,
1: the, the reborn creature, you know, come
0: back. <laughs> yeah, I had a I think we had a piece a while back and that said something like, What you need to know about the Iran nuclear deal, you know, we were all on mm-hmm. call that weekend ready uh in Vienna, but uh didn't happen. And we know the issues. One is regarding designation or lifting the designation of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. Do you see this agreement as a must-have for the Biden administration? Again, getting into the politics of it a bit, uh, this was a priority uh, when President Biden came into office. He appointed an envoy. Um, He had said during the campaign that uh, Trump made a major mistake in withdrawing from the deal. Things have gotten worse with regard to Iran's uh, nuclear capabilities since then. The administration regularly points this out. And uh, now the talks are stalled. Um, What do you see uh, happening uh, in terms of the administration? How long can they wait for Iran? And uh, as we've written uh, many times over the past year or so, um, there's not going to be a lot of uh, congressional support for an Iran nuclear deal. Uh, as compared to what we were talking about earlier with regard to U.S. policy toward Russia and Ukraine? Right. Well, I see several things.
1: Um, I see that this deal is not moving forward right now because Iran doesn't want the deal, that Iran doesn't sense that Joe Biden's administration is as powerful as it might otherwise be. You know, if Joe Biden were... um, you know, as I said, in the 60%, if we we saw America um, resurging around the world in various ways, I think this deal would have been done by now. I think the measure of the complaint about the IRDC, while maybe deep in the IRDC, is a significant institutional reality inside Iran, as you know. Um, I don't believe that its designation, one way or another, would be um, disqualifying for the Supreme Leader in Iran to have come on board. Uh, if other factors were in place, so they don't want the deal is is part of this because they don't feel um, that like <laughs> the U.S. Uh, uh, can push it, you know, forward. So it's willing to bide its time. That said, and I think it's another measure, you know, in the eyes of the world that that Joe Biden um, is is not a robust, muscular president. So. Which is unfortunate. I, I wish it were the other way. It's not not what I see or advocate. It's just the way I see it right now. So that's that's part one. Part two is, you know I, I think that I buy the line that came from President Obama that Iran and its nuclear program were on track to create enough nuclear material, potentially enough nuclear warheads combined with a ballistic missile program that could become regionally destabilizing, start an arms race and lead to you know, um, what many would call for as a call for military action against Iran, either by Israeli taking that action. And if they did take that action on their own, which is very hard to imagine, but they could take that, they would be making a strategic choice for their key ally and stalwart support of the United States. And I've always been worried that if Israel made that strategic choice for the United States, there would be enormous fallout in the long run in the us israel relationship which might not be you know a healthy thing but but let's just take it that that uh, because i haven't seen the intelligence and i don't know but let's just say i buy the line that iran is on that on that course if not constrained by the jcpoa in a deal that iran was going to see its economic fortunes rise that it was going to see investment in the nation rise and allow uh, you know, an end to the various layered sanctions uh, against the regime and help bring a higher quality of life to Iranians. So I think that was, you know, really essentially what, you know, the key elements of the deal were. But but if that um, doesn't happen, then you've got, uh, the Iranians have made enormous gains in their nuclear program after Donald Trump, you know, pulled out of the course. It was the U.S. that abrogated the deal, not the Iranians. And so in that situation, they have made enormous progress. You can't unlearn, you can't unthink, you can't, they've got the design capacity. So you're in a situation now that I think is more unstable than people may realize because it's, it's, the, the Whether they people think in terms of okay, how many widgets have they made? How many warheads they've made? It's the question that the knowledge and infrastructure can exist. Nations can eventually hide things that they sh- you know w- you know want to, and you have now created a world of blurred uncertainty, you know, around uh, a weapon of mass destruction in the region, and and created increased anxieties, which which I think is is very unfortunate. So you know, I guess in in my view whether it's President Biden, if he comes back another term, whether it's President Trump or whatever Republican comes out, you know, uh, in the next term, someone's going to be facing that military question of whether they take a preemptive strike or a reactionary strike against, um, you know, Iran's nuclear activities. It could have incredibly um, unpredictable consequences for all players in that war in the region. So I think that that's the future we have to think of, that we're casually let happen because the IRDC... Uh, issue is out there, and neither side can get around it. You have to begin thinking about the nightmare that lies ahead to understand how small and stupid the current barrier is. And so, when we get to that point of real conflict down the road, they're going to look back and say, "Why were we such idiots at that moment?" But the fact, the truth is, we're all being idiots about it. There's not, uh, you know, a sense of consequence. And I completely agree with you that if this had to go through the U.S. Senate, you know, they would never get approval. All they would do is try to. You know, I was talking to Rob Malley, who's our envoy on this, and said, you know, all they really need is to keep a filibuster from happening against them, and they will get through. So I think that's an interesting way to do it. You basically need 41 votes, as you know. You don't need 50, so.
0: Exactly. Steve, we're running out of time, but I've got to ask you this. Uh, We've known each other, I think, for almost 20 years or more than 20 years back when you were senior policy advisor to Senator Jeff Bingaman, a Democrat. I was uh, Senator Chuck Hagel's foreign policy advisor. He was he's a Republican. Many members at that time, Republican and Democrat, congealed around the center or it's near orbit. You stay close to many of the politics and the players here in Washington. And you keep up that spirit of uh, collegiality and engagement, including those you may disagree with. I, I really admire that. Are you hopeful that that spirit and tone that, we worked in on the Hill uh, those decades ago. Can take hold again.
1: I am. I mean, I may. I don't want to sound like Pollyannish or naive, but I'm too too riveted into you know decisions that unfortunately much of the nation doesn't see. Where you'll be at a dinner and hear Democratic uh, members of Congress, House and Senate, both. Confessing their desire to get things done, talking across the table, you know, with uh, you know Republican senators who who want to do this, and you know there are real differences and changes. You know, I interviewed uh, uh, you know Senator Kevin Kramer. He happened to vote against uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, but in my interview, he said it's it. There is absolutely nothing wrong for President Biden to say that that we need to um, have a. A black woman on the Supreme Court. So here's a very conservative senator from North Dakota saying something, because I'm gonna get in trouble with this, but he says, I believe that because we need a Supreme Court that looks like America. Or he said, I've got a you know, a company in my district that makes GE wind blades for the big windmills in the wind industry. And this isn't an, a fossil fuel guy. So there are right. things out there if people are creative and to find that there, you know, there's much more complexity. In them, you know, when Joe Manchin was just um, uh, you know, savaged in the New York Times and in, in, in something where they're, you know, talking about, you know, his energy portfolio, etc., saying he's never done anything on climate. Well, you know, to, to with all due respect, you know, don't want to offend him, he does, he can defend himself. But you know, if you look at what the Energy Committee has done or what he put together as a not picked up 1.8 trillion dollar alternative to Build Back Better, this is the week it blew up. So when you know, he was talking with President Biden the week the Build Back Better plan blew up. He gave him a 1.8 trillion. Everybody's saying, "Damn it, we should have grabbed the Mansion Plan, which was packed with climate provisions." So the tendency, and you know, Andrew, I, I despise the overstatement, the posturing, the the obfuscation, and the fabrication in the news media today. Let's call things as they are. Joe, you know, Joe Manchin is clearly much more uh, focused on 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 the fossil sector for he says for energy and national security reasons but he's not uh hostile to other areas of renewal so i mean that's one area of this but when you find in the space whether it's national security whether it's talking about infrastructure which had a a group of republican and democratic senators uh and house members that came together to push that through i think that you know mansion and lindsey graham and kevin kramer and uh Shelley moore capito and others are going to come together you know, Chris Coons, and they're going to do a bipartisan climate energy bill here pretty soon and, you know, hatch that in the Senate, put the deal together. Hopefully the White House comes on board. So you see it coming back in in places. And and so I'm hoping that these green shoots are something that takes hold over a period of time. Now I may be naive that that's not where the political base of these various parties are in the primaries, but I just see too much bipartisan goodwill in this town uh, that's, that's in the closet. I hope someday it can come out of the closet.
0: Let's hope so. Steve, this was a treat. Always enjoy spending time and talking with you. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East.
1: My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you so much.
0: We will be back after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al
1: Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you.
0: If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series On the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amberin and Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms.
1: And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com.
0: As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world.
1: So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis.
0: Thanks to our guest, Steve Clemens, and to our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three El Monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. gil's guest this month is Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Orhan Pamuk. On Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben's guest this week is Israeli cybermaster nadev safrir And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com.